Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks, the podcast that makes an in-depth examination of the stages and full life cycle of Drosophila melangaster, or more commonly known as the fruit fly. Once Every Two Weeks is a look back at the music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school. Join us, Tom and Mark, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years. One album at a time. Hey, Mark. Hello. Hello, Thomas. It, it, it's nice to see you here today, or, well, hear you here today. Yes, it is. You're welcome. So, once every two weeks, huh? Once every two weeks. From the TV special that became the album we're talking about today, that looks about how often Kurt Cobain did, in fact, wash his hair. And it looks spotless and clean. I was reading an interview, and MTV said they had no idea he was going to show up looking so dirty. <laughs> From what I understand of that period, MTV had absolutely no understanding of who Kurt Cobain was as a person. They had no clue what they were getting into, but I think our listeners probably have no idea what they're getting into yet either. So uh, just so you know, this is a podcast, a retrospective 90s album review and discussion with me, Tom Crow, and him, Mark Ricks. Hello. We were talking about doing a podcast and decided to go bi-weekly because we're too lazy to do a weekly podcast. Darn tootin'. Not a Surf has a wonderful song that we will be covering that will go more in-depth into where our name came from. But for those of you who are popular enough to be fans of Popular, you get the reference. But not today. Today we are discussing the 1994 performance-slash-album of MTV Unplugged in New York, Nirvana. The 1994 release of Nirvana's 1993 performance. Yes, yes. They, they, it was a, it was a several-month-later release. It was, what, seven months after? So it was seven months after Kurt's death. It was about a year after they actually taped it. They taped it November 18th, 1993. It aired December 16th. And then the album was released November 1st, 1994. Mm, that was a long time to hold on to such gold. This performance was done at the Sony Music Studio in New York City. was produced by DGC. They were doing some pretty rad stuff back in the 90s. That they were. I don't really remember uh, a time since I got into music that this album was not a part of my life. Do you? Um, yes, but I got into music super young just from having older siblings and a mother who was very much into music. Some of the first members I have were dancing around the living room with my brothers playing Beatles records at volumes that my parents would have disapproved of had they been home. Around that time, I think I was listening to popular country music. For me, popular country came a little bit later, but I mean, I'm, you know, I'm talking about, you know, those first memories being like three or four, probably of when I started getting into music for myself, there was the, the country phase. I agree that as I started getting into rock, this was something that was always there. Nirvana had already been established by the time that, you know, I finally got old enough to be angsty enough for rock. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And I, and I think that's what it is, because I remember the first time I was made aware of Nirvana, not caring about them at all and not really understanding the hype. And I think a lot of that is just from 
again, you know, 91 was what, like sixth grade. So I was still just trying to figure out what good music was and what music spoke to me. And again, still a little too young for the angst of it all. I came into my first foray into Nirvana was eighth grade. So I was right there at prime age for angst. I guess I do remember a time beforehand because the first album I bought for myself was uh, Bush's 16 Stone. Okay. And I think this album was number three or four that I bought for myself once I was actually able to buy my own CDs, compact discs, back before everything fit into my pocket. Right. I remember making the switch from buying cassettes to buying CDs. But then you went back to cassettes again. Well, I never fully left cassettes. The 90s were a time heavy with mixtapes, and you had cassettes so you could record stuff off the radio. Yeah, and you and I both had our CD players in the car were actually tapes. Remember the little, we had the tape adapter that we plugged into our Walkman? Discman, right. The first two CDs that I bought, Beastie Boys, Ill Communication, Uh and the So I Married an Axe Murderer soundtrack. Woman. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. She was a thief. <laughs> save, you got save a it. belief. Save it. Okay. We'll do uh I can't I just get so excited. So Nirvana was a big shift in what was MTV Unplugged. I think most of these young whippersnappers of today don't really understand what MTV Unplugged was. But before this, it was typically stuff like Sting, Paul McCartney, REM, Annie Lennox. LL Cool J did some too, right? I don't know if he would have done it before or after, but what it was was kind of a showcase for popular music to showcase the hits. But the the music they were focusing on was not rock at the time, as we as we see, like or at least uh, not uh, not rock that was so hard. Nothing from a punk slash post punk as as Nirvana identified themselves. Right, because you would easily classify R.E.M. or Clapton as rock, obviously. So it's not like MTV was doing easy listening. True. But yes, nothing quite as hard. There was a lot of question as to whether or not Nirvana could work in an unplugged format. And apparently Nirvana nor MTV thought it could. They were not very hopeful going into this, as I've learned. My understanding is Kurt or Nirvana were hopeful. They were very concerned. In Utero had only been out for two months prior to when they did the taping. And so they did this taping in the middle of touring in support of In Utero. On that tour, there had been a couple of dates where Kurt had done a portion of the set solo and acoustic. So the idea of the formatting was something that was on their mind. And so this was a chance to explore it. But as to whether or not this first foray into the realm of acoustic adjacent Nirvana music, whether it would be successful or not, that was on everyone's mind within the band. Yeah, one of the things they were concerned about coming into this was particularly Dave Grohl's drums, right? He was a very heavy drummer. Yes. And so MTV was concerned about whether they could tone that down because if Dave Grohl started getting louder, everybody else would start getting louder and it would, it would move away from the set they were they were going for. Yeah, you'd lose the intimacy. Yep. And that was a concern that Kurt Voice and other people had voiced as well during the rehearsals for this. Yeah, so it was MTV's Alex Coletti. Mm-hmm. You know, this was close to Christmas time, so he wrapped up a set of wire brushes and sizzle sticks and gave them to David Grohl. And he was afraid that David Grohl, Dave Grohl would get offended by it. And instead, Grohl was really excited because he had never used them. And there are several songs on this album, as you're listening to, those brushes make, make the song. I mean, they add so much to it that if it, were a, if it were a heavy drum beat behind, would not have had the same effect. Absolutely. 
I think it's interesting then as we're listening to this, and, and this is pr- this is probably the single most iconic unplugged that ha- that happened, at least for people from from our generation. Uh, it's really interesting that none of the other band members from Nirvana ever went on to do anything of note, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I can't name a single one. <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> This was one of the, I guess, one of the times where Nirvana was the biggest as a band that they had ever been. Not just in terms of like sales and hype, but actually. Yeah, Pat just joined. They also had Laurie Goldston. Doing the cello, right? Yeah, on cello. That and as Kurt called them, the brothers meet. The brothers meet, yeah. They didn't play the whole set, but that's how he introduced them. That was Chris and Kurt Kirkwood. Because Kurt was a huge fan of the Meat Puppets. They were touring together at the time, and Kurt invited them to come play before talking to MTV and then told MTV they had guests that they wanted. And, of course, yeah. you know, it's it's MTV, so they're thinking, all right, we're going to get Eddie Vedder or, or Tori Amos. And then they're like, wait, you're bringing who? Well, those are the names. Those are two of the names that MTV actually pitched to Nirvana's management. Right. That Nirvana's management straight up didn't even take it to Kurt, didn't take it to the band. They were just, No. Well, because Kurt had already decided he wanted the brothers meet, right? Like, he was a big Meat Puppets fan. Depending on who's telling the story, the way that the Kirkwood brothers talk about it, they discussed doing this, like, Kurt approached them while they were on tour, and at a point, he wanted them to teach him how to play their songs, and at a point, just decided, why don't you just come on the show and do it with us? Whereas, to hear it told by some of the people at MTV... They say that they were told last minute that the Meat Puppets were going to join them, and it sounds like they felt blindsided by it. Yeah. The world may never know. Uh, I think both can be the true, right? There's no reason that these yeah. have to be apart because yeah. of the way that we see Kurt's genius work. As you'd mentioned, that being a departure from the norm, from what MTV Unplugged had been, it doesn't seem like a true Unplugged, especially the first few tracks of the album. Uh, that's because it wasn't. Right. They were they were plugging their acoustic instruments into their pedal boards and Kurt had an amp. Well, yeah, they had that they had the set and they built a, they built something to hide the amp, which yeah. doesn't make sense when you hear the man who sold the world, right? Right. Like, well, they they they, <laughs> they built a box to look yeah. like just look like a monitor wedge to sit over the amp. And then of course during Man Who Sold the World it started feeding back. But another another thing after that song, Coletti, who was the producer of that, yep. was one of those things where there was like do you want to do a second take? Because with MTV Unplugged, the whole idea being more of a showcase performance is that you'd have the artists that would come, they do two or three takes, pick whichever one they thought was the best. And so Nirvana said, no, we're just doing one take. They just treated it like a normal show. Yep. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's so endearing is because it is very much that live performance, the energy, the honesty of it. Mm-hmm. And of all the MTV Unplugs, there were only three of them that went in a single take, and Nirvana's was the first. Who were the other two? I'm looking it up. I don't have it. Shame on you. When I restarted my computer, I lost my notes because I didn't save them, so now I'm scrambling trying to find all my notes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, while you're looking for that, it's interesting that you pointed out R.E.M. specifically as one of the prior bands that was like the normal type of act for the Unplugged because mixing the audio for the performance was Scott Litt, who was an audio producer who was known for producing R.E.M.'s albums. That is interesting. He also was approached after the band got the initial mixes back from In Utero. They approached him to do some remixing because they didn't care at all for the mixes that were done. 
the reason they went with him for the remixes of In Utero is he had been Kurt's first choice for Nevermind. Only his wife was expecting a baby and he turned them down. People need to get their priorities straight, man. He admits that 25 years later, he still regrets it. <laughs> but at the same time, I am a huge Butch Vig fan. So I think they definitely made the right choice with Butch. It turned out well for them. Yeah, it seemed to go okay. I can't find the other two. I'll find it later. So I, one thing I was really intrigued that I found uh, while we were preparing for this and reading some of the the behind the scenes and, and the, the retrospectives from people who were involved mm -hmm. was Kurt Cobain's take on the, the set. The set was a dramatic departure from what we had seen before on MTV Unplugged. For example, Kurt Cobain insisted on having, you know, the black candles around and stargazer lilies. He had a very specific idea for the set, yes. He did. And when he was asked by... Um, it was Coletti. A, yeah, by Alex Coletti. He's like, uh, you mean like a funeral? And he said, yes, exactly, like a funeral. So with stuff like that going into this, there are a lot of people who say they saw this as, you know, kind of a suicide note from Kurt Cobain, but, but the band and MTV all say that's definitely not the case. The way that Alex Coletti tells the story is he'd gone and he'd met with the band and he had some mock-ups, some sketches of what the set should look like. Yep. Kurt liked some stuff, but he made some notes and Coletti was the one who had said, so you mean like a funeral? And Kurt says, yes, exactly. Later in, in an interview or a couple of years ago, talked about that specifically because a lot of people looking back on it want to read foreshadowing into this whole performance. Yeah. With regard to that exchange, the quote from Coletti is, it wasn't on his mind at all. I put that out there. It was me that brought that kind of gloom into the shorthand of how we would describe the set. Yeah. To maybe some degree, I would speculate it's more if there was some foreshadowing. It was more of a transition from who Nirvana had been and changing sound more than foreshadowing Kurt's personal issues. Although, yeah, I will say throughout the performance, you can definitely tell from the way Kurt sings, what he sings, what he emphasizes, you can tell he's struggling a lot. Well, he was he was nervous as hell. He was, and he was also going through withdrawals. Yep. Supposedly, the studio tried to find heroin, but nobody knew how to get it. And so they drugged him up with some Valium before he went out. Yep. Uh, so cool story, Mark. I did a conference in Seattle a few years back at what is now the Pop, the Pop Culture Museum, which is an amazing building. If none of you have been to, you should check it out. And Chris Novosella donated a lot of Nirvana memorabilia. And one of the things you can go see is they have this iconic sweater that we all immediately, because of this performance, associate with Kurt. You can go see, you know, you can see that and a lot of the other Nirvana stuff. It was an amazing trip down memory lane just to see all of this stuff in person. Sadly, though, we don't have his guitar. <sighs> I, I want to know what was going on in that divorce that led to Francis. For those of you who don't know, the guitar that Kurt played during the performance was made in the 50s. It was one of like 330 made. It was a very special size, very special kind of acoustic with an electric pickup. And somehow it was the Francis Martin D18E, right? Francis being it was beautiful too. Francis being got married, and somehow when she got unmarried, her <laughs> ex-husband ended up with this guitar, which makes no damn sense whatsoever. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. And he sold it for six million dollars to to Peter Friedman, the owner of Rode. 
whose microphone I'm using tonight, Rode, if you are looking for new podcasts to sponsor, we are gladly taking uh, applications for that. Uh, but yeah, he, um, it became the, it's the highest, it's a record breaking 6 million. No guitar has ever sold for that much at auction. Which is funny because on the album, you hear Kurt talking about how the Lead Belly estate had contacted him about trying to buy Lead Belly's guitar. Yeah. For $500,000. <laughs> we read all of these accounts from people who were there at, from the industry, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are just a ton of write-ups from reporters, from, from all the different magazines who were present, some celebrities, and everybody said they knew while the, once it started, they knew immediately they were witnessing a, an historic moment. Yeah. There was a, a, a gravity over everything that was happening. You knew you were part of something that you would never be a part of in your life. And for that, I'm a little jealous. I wish I could have experienced it. I'm not sure it would have made a lot of sense to me at 12 or 13 years old, though. Right. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have had appreciated as much. No, that time machine, though. Yep. So speaking of the audience, did you read into it about uh, who he put in the front row? Just friends. People he liked, knew, he trusted. Just friends, because he wanted to look at them. He didn't want strangers. Or his own wife. <laughs> right. <laughs> no strangers, no Courtney Love. Well, uh, that's, he, he didn't even want uh, Courtney in the studio. That's what I mean. He, he didn't want her there, or Francis. Right. So do we want to jump into the album? Yeah. Or the performance, the songs? Yeah. Before they even play their first note, I think it's worth noting that 17 seconds in, that's when the words out of Kurt's mouth are, this is off our first record. Most people don't own it. <laughs> well, because they'd become, they'd become celebrities with they, uh, Nevermind. Yeah, he assumed they didn't know Bleach. Right. And... And apparently that was a, that was a theme at all the in utero tour was that he was taught he at a point talk about how nobody bought bleach and he was kind of resentful he wasn't necessarily resentful of the fame or the success that they had had but just kind of the trappings of the fans that jumped on board later play freebird we'll come to that later <laughs> a lot of the in utero tour was trying to like walk a balancing act of big successful shows but not arena shows Right, they were hitting some of those second-tier cities that they missed on the right. Nevermind so tour. so a lot of that and a lot of they didn't want too big of stadiums. They played a lot of college campuses, and yet they'd still get a lot of like high school kids out to those shows rather than the college kids. A lot of as I will frequently reference the Brown Doc Martin kids. Because in, in the 90s, uh, <laughs> if you weren't around or don't recall, Doc Martins were cool. The black ones the were black cool. The black ones were cool. The Brown Docs is what all the preppy kids that bandwagon things after they were verified as popular would wear. So, funny story for you, Mark. My black docks that I bought sophomore year of high school wore out in 2019. They were just beyond repair. And I bought a new pair, and I put them on, and I was like, these are the most uncomfortable things I have ever worn in my life. But I pushed through. I persevered. I bled blisters, but now... These things are as good as they were. And the way I see it on the timeline on how long I keep these and my life expectancy, I'm only going to have to do that one more time. <laughs> You're going to be buried in those docks. I love them. They're just so comfortable. Moving back to 17 seconds in. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt's, you know, showing his disenchantment out of this. And the irony of it is at the time, Bleach was just right on the tipping point of selling enough to go platinum. (laughs) That's great marketing. 
to just mock people for not having his first album while you're at his concert. Especially if you have it on CD in the merch table. <laughs> right? Oh, well, I'm not going to let him say that about me. I'm going to go buy this. Yep. It's interesting, all the self-deprecation, too, but we'll get through, we'll get into that as we, we go through the songs. Great. And they opened up with About a Girl. Yep. And immediately, I'm assuming the fans who the, who did have Bleach would know something was different because he's not. they're not just playing this song acoustic. That was something Dave Grohl said that they in, intentionally did not want to do with what they had heard others doing, right. it, which is just basically rocking out. Playing the song in the same guitar. way, but just on an acoustic guitar instead of an electric. Which this is something that, that stuck with me throughout the years. The concerts I enjoy the most are when I go and I know the song but they but the bands do something different with it and the big one i'm thinking of is that that i've seen do it more than anybody else is counting crows i was gonna say the same thing yeah it's always different and you can tell where adam duritz is in in his life and in his current state by what he's the way he's playing certain songs namely round here but kurt did that with all of these songs yep. his creative vision uh for what mtv unplugged was just opened amazingly with about a girl yep and i like it did you like did you did you like about a girl? What was that song about again? Uh I think it was about somebody. Hmm. I just can't remember who. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they followed that up with playing their quote unquote hit of the night with Come As You Are. Come ashore? <laughs> it's one of those those most misknown i think my sister i think cassie called it come ashore and we made fun of her oh cassie also Cass. or one of her friends it could i, I will say it may have been one of her friends that thought it was come ashore that we mocked but in any case there was high school kids bullying middle school kids for their as there always will be yeah, for their late for their late joining of the nirvana crowd um, I really don't know if I like this version of Come As You Are or the Nevermind version more. Well, then it's a good thing you don't have to pick. Nobody's ever going to put a gun to my head and ask me which one I like more, right? Well, they wouldn't before. But now that you've said that, it's out there on the internet. People are weird. So on the recording of this, there's a big focus on Dave Grohl playing the mm -hmm. drums and seeing him enjoying his new toys, which knowing that backstory now makes that a little yeah. more fun. But I, I think this kind of reiterates that point of they weren't just playing the hits the same way that they always played the hits. They were trying to find something new and a way to bring new life to it. Is it, is it doesn't or don't? According to... Oh, yep, it is Jesus doesn't want me for sunbeam. As opposed to the Vaseline Jesus wants me for a sunbeam, right? Right. Our first cover. Well, not just the first cover, but... It's three songs in, and they're already abandoning the hits. Right. You have About a Girl, you have Come As You Are, Come As You Are being one of their biggest songs. And so, do they keep playing the hits? No. no. Not only are we not going to play the hits, but we're going to play somebody else's not hit. Right. <laughs> the not hits of some other unknown band. And that's, that's something that's reflective not just of this performance, but Nirvana's entire career from their rise to fame. Kurt was very focused on bringing up bands that he loved, bands that he you know cared about, people that he saw making music that should be known on a bigger level. Give a stage, give a platform, give some recognition to people that he didn't see getting any. Uh, he really pushed a lot for Slater Kinney back in the day, didn't he? He pushed for, for a lot of people. But he really liked, he was really about empowering female lead artists as well. 
I'd read, and I can't remember if it was when the band was um, first, when they left Sub Pop and were looking for, like, which major label to sign with. I can't remember if it was during a lunch with somebody that was courting them or if it was one of the first lunches once they had signed with DGC. But Kurt kind of spent the entire lunch telling whoever it was from the label that they needed to sign Mud Honey, And he wouldn't shut up about Mud Honey. <laughs> <laughs> he's at this meeting. He's just on this big contract. They're going to be a huge band. And he's just telling them, okay, we're good. Yeah, but go sign Mud Honey. By the way, the Vaselines and Mudhoney are both still around. Good for them. And Mudhoney had been around for a while. They formed back in 1978. Wow. Well, the the band that would become Mudhoney, they were Mr. Epp in the calculations, but officially became Mudhoney back in 88. Interesting. You're going to hear this a few times on this recording, but I prefer Kurt Cobain's version to the Vaselines version. And all of that is probably attributed to Novoselic's playing the accordion on this track. Mm-hmm. Did you know that the accordion was the first instrument that Chris Novoselic learned to play? I did not know this. Yep. It was the first thing that he learned to play. So Kurt bought him an accordion. And during the rehearsals for this performance, he was kind of just screwing around with it and kind of figured out the accordion part. And there we go. And he played Alex Coletti's acoustic bass. He did. That Alex wouldn't let him put any stickers on. Right. Uh, Cool. So, yeah, that was a good song. Moving on. They've departed from the hits to do a cover. Do they go back to the hits? No. No. We go to another cover. This time, uh, uh, another unknown artist by the name of David Bowie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and it's so different, though. I mean, like, he took the man who sold the world and just really, it's a completely different song. It is. Again, we can't call this an acoustic performance, though, especially this song. (laughs) Right. Well, we can't call it unplugged because it is an acoustic performance. He performed on an acoustic guitar. Yeah, that's true. That was plugged into something. The one thing that I've I've been thinking about as we've been prepping for this, by no means is David Bowie a slouch. By no means did he have an unsuccessful career. No. Again, I haven't researched it. I don't know where his career was, what he was doing music wise. But I've been wondering, it's like, is this kind of like John Travolta landing in Pulp Fiction? Nirvana covers Man Who Sold the World, and all of a sudden there's now these brown dock wearing teenagers who care about David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> Little preppies. I, I mean, I obviously I doubt it hurt. <laughs> oh, for sure. It could not have hurt. I mean, that's a, a getting a vet from Kurt Cobain right after Nevermind, right before In Utero is a huge boost. Right after In Utero. No matter who you are as an artist. Oh, right. Right after. Right yeah. after in utero. After the. It's, it's two uh, months yeah. out. And, and part of the reason that Kurt wanted to do it, to do this performance and at this time, they'd kind of had a bad experience with the music video for Heart Shaped Box. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so he saw doing this as a way to get out of making another music video for in utero. The dialogue that Kurt has between these two shows just how uncomfortable he really was. You can hear him after uh, The Man Who Sold the World before the next song that we'll discuss, where he says, uh, that thanks, that was a David Bowie song. I didn't screw it up, did I? Going into it, he promised the audience that that would be the song that he would screw up. Yeah, and he said, I didn't screw it up, did I? And then he said, but here's another one I could screw up. And he decides to do the next song, a Nirvana mm-hmm. original, Penny Royalty, in a different key. Right. And there's a fun little banter between him and, and Dave as to whether or not he's going to do it by himself. Yeah. To which Dave says, yes, do it by yourself. He says, okay, well, then I think I'll try it in a different key. I'll try it in a normal key. 
And if it sounds bad, these people are just going to have to wait. <laughs> and he hits Penny Royal T. Fun fact about Penny Royal T, before they'd done any of the demos, while they were still kind of writing and figuring out what songs were going to be on the next Nirvana album, Courtney borrowed it and played it live at one of her performances. She did. And she really, 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 really wanted to steal it and use it on a whole record. Kurt called Danny Goldberg, who was his manager, label guy, who was also involved with Hole, and told Danny very specifically, in no uncertain terms, Courtney cannot have the song. It's for the next Nirvana record. Talk her out of it. He wasn't necessarily one for confrontation, but he made sure to, that other people were willing to go to bat for him, which is what he was paying them for. Pretty much. And this song is delving into Kurt's depression, right? Kurt says Penny Royalty is an herbal ab abortive. And he wanted to throw in the title because he had so many friends who had tried it and it never worked. Quoting him from his interview in the October 1993 issue of Impact, he says, the song is about a person who's beyond depressed. They're in their deathbed, pretty much. So it's a happy song. It's a very happy song. Excellent. You can just sit and drink your penny royalty. Mm -hmm. You got to be careful, though, if you're an anemic royalty. They should put a warning label on it. They should. Well, this conversation is getting really dumb, isn't it? It's about to. You see what I did there? I do. And you think I'm dumb, don't you? <laughs> I do. Next up, dumb. 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 One of my favorite Nirvana titles. Uh, we won't go into the other ones that are obviously not on here. Nope. They did not play all the hits or all of their their favorites. You're just really sad we don't have Francis Farmer. I am. This was on In Utero as well. Yep. But again, they made it different. They changed up the tempo, slowed it down a bit. Yeah. And uh, I think every high schooler in the 90s sang this song and listened to it quite a bit, right? Unless they were idiots. Unless they were dumb? Sure. I think the fact that In Utero had only been out for two months, making changes to the song that people maybe aren't familiar with yet seems unnecessary. But again, it was something that was important to, to Kurt and something important to the band. I think that's always a good sign of a great performer, somebody who knows their own material enough and is comfortable or confident in it enough to give it a different voice. Yeah. One of my all-time favorite Nirvana songs. The next one, the next song's pretty depressing. It is. Often cited by people as their darkest song, which is interesting. Yep. Polly appeared on... Polly was Nevermind. Uh, Polly was on Nevermind. And Polly is Kurt's reaction to a serial killer that he learns about from Washington that killed a 14-year-old girl named Polly. He wrote the song on a $30 pawn shop guitar in Madison, Wisconsin. I don't want to go into the details because it's a pretty depressing story, but it apparently hit hit Kurt hard. Okay. I wasn't sure if you were talking about Polly's story or as to why Kurt was in Wisconsin. <laughs> the lyrics he brings in are actually based on the events that he in the newspaper and are details of, of the girl's last time, so of her of the last time in her life. When Nirvana was shopping for who to sign with after they left Sub Pop, they had a meeting and they don't name names, but there's one big label specifically that they intentionally didn't sign with because one of the big wigs at the label during their conversation brought Polly up and how much he enjoyed the song. Essentially, the guy just completely missed the point of it and more or less identified not with Polly, but with the other party. And the band was like, we're done here. 
You know, I dug into this song a little bit and read some of what Kurt Cobain had to say back in 91. Okay. He said he was talking to a friend. He said, I was talking to a friend of mine who went to a rape crisis center where women are taught judo and karate. She looked out the window and saw a football pitch full of boys and thought, those are the people that really need this class. Mm-hmm. He went on to say that rape is one of the most terrible crimes on earth and it happens every few minutes. The problem with groups who deal with rape is they try to educate women about how to defend themselves. What really needs to be done is teaching men not to rape. Go to the source and start there. So simple. Yep. And, you know, he stood by it, too. Cobain was a uh, Kurt was a, a strong supporter of women's rights, of gay rights, equality, calling out yeah. bigots. He did. He flat out told people at this point, I have a request for our fans. If any of you in any way hate homosexuals, people of color or women, please do this one favor for us. Leave us the F alone. Don't come to our shows and don't buy our records. Go, Kurt. Yep. I do want to say, though, they tried to do some things to help people. For example, Nirvana gave a benefit cause concert for Bosnian rape victims after Polly had come out, uh, raising $60,000. Finding ways to use the celebrity and the fame, not for themselves, yep. but to help benefit other people, which that should be the point of being famous. It should be. So when our podcast becomes huge, we're going to do things to help other people, right? No, we're going to delete this episode and buy Ferraris. <laughs> We're still stuck in Nevermind. Yep. But again, not one of the hits. Nope. So we're on a plane. Right. Uh, the geometric idea, not the aircraft. Correct. And this isn't one of my favorites from the album. No? No. That's okay. It is, because we go right on to something that I absolutely love the way Kurt Cobain does live, which is something in the way. Yep. It is just so... To be fair, I think this is one that probably translates the closest to the album version. Yeah. And that's okay. Because he wasn't screaming on the album of this one either. Right. This one really just sticks with you. The melodic way he sings, how low-key it is, but the music itself, there's, there's, a, there's a heaviness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that really I, that really resonates with all of us who grew up in suburban America with so much angst because of how awful our lives really were, right? Right. Well, this is instead of just the screaming cathartic angst. Yep. This is the stuck in depression, everything's hopeless at 3 a.m. angst. So it's got it's almost got an eerie feel to it, right? When he's doing it live, it's got this eeriness underpinning it. Right. And next we bring in some friends, right? Mm-hmm. Next is our first cover with Meat Puppets. Yep. By the time I got into this, I think a lot more people knew Meat Puppets because Too High to Die had been on the charts for a while, right? Uh, at this point. Mm-hmm. Do you know how long Meat Puppets have been around? I do not. You want to take a guess at what year they found? They were founded. Oh, well, they're they're brothers. Uh huh. So they probably started playing music together early. Uh huh. I'm gonna guess 1985. You were so close. It was 1980. Before we, they've been around since before we were born. Okay. Good for them. Yeah, good for them. The, so it's funny. My first encounter with Meat Puppets came from my dad, who bought the Too High to Die album. Okay. Which was released at the beginning of 1994. So, like you said, it's one of those things. Meat Puppets weren't well known when they recorded this. But by the time it came out a year later, they had been, spent 20-something weeks on the Billboard charts with various songs from Too High to Die. So even though they say that some things never change, apparently some things do change. (laughs) That was was a pity laugh if I've ever heard one. (laughs) Is there such a thing as a dad band joke? 
I think we just made one. Okay. Trademark once every two weeks. <laughs> I like both versions of this. What the way meat puppets do it is it's a very interesting take. Mm-hmm. But you see Kurt Cobain, I we're going to keep saying this throughout this album. Kurt Cobain's music genius really shines in the song. Right. And that's your way of saying that you prefer this version to the original. I do, but I still like the original. Right. Which I can't say about the next song. Did we actually say that we had been talking about Plateau? Had we said the Plateau name at this point? Oh, no, I don't think we actually said Plateau. We were talking about Plateau. We've been talking about Plateau for those of you who are waiting for us to, to get on with it. So the next song that Tom apparently does not like is Oh Me. I don't mind the Nirvana version. It's This is probably, you know, one of my least two favorite songs on this album, but I really don't like the Meat Puppets version. Have you heard it? You're probably not the only one. Mm-hmm. And when this recording aired the first time, they cut this. They did. Probably because they knew you didn't care for it. Thank you, MTV. But did you, do you have you heard the Meat Puppets version? It's been a while. I sadly it did is, not brush up on the Meat Puppets for this. It is so raw. Hmm. It's got, a, it's got a really immature, very raw. It sounds like what we would have heard people in high school playing in their guitar, in their garage. Okay. But then things pick up immediately with Lake of Fire, which was... Which is another banger. Uh, it is. It was a hidden track on Too High to Die. So there were at least more people probably familiar with this song when it came out than the others that they covered. This is having actually been attributed to the second Meat Puppets album. So they may have done an alternate version as the bonus for Too High to Die. Correct. Correct. So what you're saying is that, yes, people may have been more... I think that's where people would have known it from. It was originally on Meat Puppets 2 back in 84, and then they brought it back in 94 for Too High to Die as a hidden version. Which was something bands did in the 90s. I know Face to Face did that with a couple of songs. It was something that that people did, that you recorded a song, and if the album didn't do well enough, but you thought you had a, a good song, you do another version, slap it on the next album, try it again. Yep. This time it almost worked. It worked well for Nirvana. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Lake of Flyer and Plateau are two of my favorites off the album. and These are two that complement each other very well, sound similar, but also don't deviate from the sound of the rest of the Nirvana originals, quote unquote. Right. There's some that Kurt's able to take and own and fit into the Nirvana catalog seamlessly. You know, I didn't listen to the edited version, obviously, but I'm going to make a playlist and take out Oh Me and see how it sounds with the transition. I imagine these two songs back to back would be better than with the Oh Me interlude between the two of them. I would be one to keep the Oh Me in there between them. Something that I always tell people that ask my opinion about music. I, I work with a few musicians. And if there's songs that seem similar enough, don't put them back to back. Yeah, break them up a little bit. So that's the only reason I would be an advocate for keeping Oh Me in the mix. (laughs) One fun thing, though, about Lake of Fire. I keep saying it's fun things. I don't know if it's fun. Maybe you want me to shut up already. And I'm speaking to listeners, not to Tom. I know Tom already wants me to shut up. No, I think this sounds like it's going to be fun. Spoiler alert. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, when they were rehearsing, somebody made the comment that it seemed like it was a bit of a struggle for Kurt to sing. And Kurt admitted that it was outside of his normal vocal range. And a lot of the the reason that we get the performance that we get out of him, the one that he gives on this is, again, because it's not within his normal vocal range. But he refused to transpose the song or to, like, move it keys to move it into something more comfortable. He liked the challenge. He wanted it to be difficult, knowing that that the struggle is what gives it the personality, the quality of his voice and the break. 
breaks and the cracks. And that's why. And that's so much fun to sing. And that's, yeah, that's why this is, this and Plateau are the two funnest songs on the album to to sing along with. Can you give me your impression, your your best take at Lake of Fire? I was more prepared for Plateau. Okay, okay. We can come back to it. You do Lake of Fire and I'll do Plateau. And nobody will appreciate either of those from us. We can have a challenge. We can have a sing-off. Okay, people can tell us what they think. The first ever, once every two weeks, sing-off. <laughs> Possibly the last ever, once every two weeks, sing-off. Next up, all <laughs> apologies. All apologies. What else should I say? I love this song. It's great. It's another one that Kurt's just unapologetically being supportive of a community that frequently needs support. Yep. This is another one of those often misheard lyrics. Mm-hmm. But Kurt Cobain leaves a lot of room for in creative interpretation. People mishear the aqua seafone shame as acquiesce from shame hmm. or offer seed from shame. I did not know that. They also mishear I'm married to air raid and married, buried. People sing airy fairy. Hmm. My favorite one, though, is when he's singing all in all is all we are. People often hear Alan Alda all day long. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I for one would be perfectly okay with Alan Alda all day long. <laughs> MASH is one of my three all-time favorite TV series. <laughs> but people think they hear Kurt Cobain seeing that 20 times. Who? You mishear it. Who? I don't know, I just, I found it, I found it on this, like, there's like a list of like the most mis- misheard yeah, I, 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 that sounds whether that's true. That or sounds not. like a stretch to me. That sounds like something where somebody's just like thought it would be funny to. Well, you you know what? They were right. It's hilarious. Good job, guys or gals. Yeah, cool. But yeah, it's a great song. It is. It was the second single off of In Utero and dropped December sixth, nineteen ninety three, right between the taping and the airing of the MTV Unplugged performance. So the meaning that I read, and I don't know how valid it is, was that basically Kurt Cobain didn't love Courtney Love. That seems to be a, 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 an interpretation a lot of people have about this song. I know that their relationship was full of ups and downs. Reading but a lot of the Danny Goldberg book, he talks a lot about their relationship. And at least at some point, it sounded like Kurt actually liked Courtney. Well, as of 2008, and granted, that's that's been a minute, but it's also was a long time after Kurt Cobain was gone. Henry Rollins was still telling everybody who would listen that Courtney Love killed Kurt Cobain, supposedly. A friend of mine drove Henry Rollins from the airport to a concert at a university or a spoken word thing at a mm-hmm. university. And the entire hour long car ride, he just talked about how Courtney Love killed Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Well, yeah, there are a lot of theories as to, to what happened. And I think a lot of people have reached the conclusion that regardless of who pulled the trigger, Courtney was responsible. I like the fact that we're one episode in and already uh, potentially committing libel. <laughs> I didn't say that I agreed with that theory. No, no, neither of us have said we agreed with it. That's true. We are not guilty of libel. We are just telling you what other people have said. We're going to come up next with where did you sleep last night, right? Correct. We're going to end the night with a cover, but we weren't supposed to. We weren't supposed to. So all apologies was the end of their set list. This was closing out with a single, maybe bring it back to the hits. During the rehearsal process for this, they actually didn't rehearse Where Did You Sleep Last Night. Nobody was expecting it, but it was a song that, because a couple years prior, Mark Lanigan of The Screaming Trees, who recently passed away, which is a shame. Yeah. 
he put out a, a solo album where he performed this song and Kurt plays guitar on it and Novoselic plays bass. So it's one that they had experience playing before and were familiar enough with. And because of the whole Lead Belly estate trying to sell Kurt a guitar, um, somehow they decided to give this one a go. Hmm. I guess you could say it worked out. Yeah. Alex Coletti was sent by the executives. They were trying to get Kurt to do an encore. Basically, Kurt told him, according to to Coletti, that Kurt said he couldn't top what he just did. Coletti agreed and didn't push anymore. Yep. For everybody who was there, the emotion that poured out and the how far Kurt Cobain pushed himself Mm -hmm. vocally, it was it was a perfect ending. I don't think ending the album with all apologies would have been nearly as powerful as it did with where did you sleep last night? Certainly not. And this, and this is one where especially lends itself to the whole foreshadow or coincidence arguments. Yeah. But we know that he was troubled and dealing with drug addiction and depression and everything else. So I think we could probably go back to any album or any of their concerts that are recorded and find that same level of foreshadowing. Certainly. And you can always just assign it to any of it. Knowing with hindsight what you know, it's easy to do. It's easy to be a prophet in retrospect, right? But still hard to profit. Probably not for anybody who has money coming in from the Nirvana estate. Which is good since none of them went on to do anything (laughs) of note after this. (laughs) Nope. I had to dig deep to find this, but Novoselic did serve public office. And Grohl went on to play in a couple other small kind of garage bands. What happened to Pat? I don't know. I've always had mixed feelings with Pat, and if I consider him a, a member of Nirvana, quote unquote, or not, um, because they brought him in. Because he came in so he late. Came in so late in the game. It's. I mean, I think he's definitely would have stuck around and contributed. Teenage Mark was definitely like, screw that guy. He wasn't in Nirvana. Yeah. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, maybe I'm willing to, to be more lean and be like, yeah. I mean, they they brought him in for a reason. Well, and they talk about how he changed the general feel. He was just such a, a so much more positive than everybody else. Uh, Pat Smear is in a small band right now too. Well, he was also in a, a small band before. Yeah, he rejoined. He rejoined that small garage band with Dave Grohl. Do you know which song Dave Grohl wrote about her about Kurt Cobain? Well, I hope it wasn't the one that they did the Mentos commercial music video for. Unfortunately, it was. Really. No. Okay. A lot of people think it was the song Hero, but it was actually a song called Walk from 2011. Mm. I recognize that Grohl has made some at least minor contributions to the ongoing thing that is rock and roll, but I have never been a follower of Foo Fighters. Me neither. I don't go I don't think I've ever intentionally gone to listen to a Foo Fighters song, but again, if I'm listening to the radio, I'm not going to channel surf to get away from right 90 of their songs I, I respect the hell out of dave grohl and i think he is a phenomenal musician and i think he proved that in nirvana and he's proved it with his small unsuccessful side project since yeah i don't know if you've seen the latest bill and ted movie i have not there is an absolutely incredible bit in there built around dave grohl really yep there is a great bit about Dave Grohl on The Great North, the Fox TV show starring Nick Offerman and Megan Maloney. 
There is a girl, the daughter, has an imaginary friend who is Alanis Morissette, but in the Aurora Borealis. And she's talking to her and she tells about how the so is it an, musicians... Is it an imaginary friend voiced by Alanis Morissette or is it supposed oh, yeah, to be... Alanis. Or is she talking to the Aurora Borealis and saying, oh, Alanis. Both. Okay. Okay. It is Alanis Morissette in the Aurora Borealis, voiced as Alanis. And she talked about how they used to do girls trip to Cabo and that in order for her and I think Tori Amos and maybe Natalie Merchant, they used to go or Jewel. Yeah, I'd have to look it up. Some of those uh, would do a they would go. They would say they were going to Cabo and then they would go out to Baja Fresh with Dave Grohl and let him feel like he was included for 45 minutes before going to the airport and taking a two week trip away from David Grohl to Cabo. Nice. You know, one thing we never talked about with this podcast was how we end it. That's fine. I'm not quite there yet. Good. I have a few more that I want to talk about. Okay. One being, they didn't play, you know, the hits, as it were. And it's something that people talk to the fans, they talk to who was there, and they're like, what they did was magical and special and amazing, and I wouldn't change a thing. And 25 years later, you talk to the people who were the, the head execs at MTV, and they're still bitter that they didn't play the hits. Smells like Teen Spirit. Right. This was one of only 11 performances out of 150 sets that Nirvana played without playing Smells Like Teen Spirit since they debuted the song. Really? Yep. Wow. Are there any songs you would have liked to have seen added here and I don't think Smells Like Teen Spirit would have worked? No. Um, that is a great question that I have not thought about at all. And I'm not being sarcastic with that, so give me a... Give me a second to think about that. Um, I hadn't thought about it either, but I thought, I hey, know. this uh, makes sense for something for us to talk about, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, In Bloom would have been really good. Yeah. It's hard because the other the other songs of theirs that I loved so much for that in-your-face, aggressive, screaming teen angst that we discussed, you couldn't do Lithium, right? Right. You couldn't do, well, I mean, you couldn't do Stay Away. No, because that that screaming and his vocal, his severe vocal fry at you the just, end, you need that angst. You just you just lose it. Yeah, singing happy, I killed you. I'm not gonna crack. Just doesn't work, right? Right. I've got to stop saying right. Right. I think I said that too much. Correct. Yeah, you know you're right. Wouldn't have worked. Bit of sun. Yeah. I don't know. Any closing thoughts about the album? Anything that that you have in your lost notes that you want to touch on? No, I love it. I've been listening to it for the last week when I'm, you know, working or coding or building websites for podcast networks or podcasts where I troll Mark about his love for Celine Dion. It's been playing and I'm still not tired of it. Yeah, it's one that I listened through a couple of times, and I had to keep myself from going down the street to the record store and buying the DVD, because this is a review of the album, not a review of the larger performance as a whole. Which does remind me, though, earlier I did promise that we would come back to Freebird. Yes, Freebird. Somebody at a point during the taping, it's not on the the CD, somebody at a point did yell, Freebird, to which the band then started playing the first couple of notes of Sweet Home Alabama. We'll link that in the show notes. It's on YouTube. Which I think is the absolute greatest troll. Yeah, it is. I am 100% on board. I don't know if you've ever heard Isaac Brock talk about it. He he goes into this on their their live album, Varenbaum Bullshit Rides Again. He goes off what somebody else, Freebird. And the condensed version of his rant is that life is too short 
to play or listen to Freebird. <laughs> and I am 100% absolutely on board with this philosophy. Uh, and it's not that... He goes so far yeah. as to say, if this, if this were, were the Make-A-Wish Make Foundation... Foundation and you were going to die in 20 minutes just Good, long just enough, enough to, play free, to play Freebird. We still wouldn't play it. Yep. <laughs> it's beautiful what he says. I wholeheartedly encourage looking that up. I was at a show recently. My buddy Columbia, his band was playing. And the opener at the end of their set, they're like, okay, we've got time enough for like one or two more songs. What do you want? And somebody yells Freebird. And instead of just playing the first couple of notes and moving on to something else, they actually played the entire song. And I just had to sit there just smiling politely because I was working the merch table and dying inside. And I realized, though, it's it's not that I hate the song. I don't hate Freebird. I hate the people that yell for Freebird. I think that's fair. Yeah. I, it's, not, it's not funny or creative at this point anymore, right? No. I think it's worth discussing whether or not the album holds up because we're looking at all these things that were near and dear to our hearts when we were in high school, but we have the luxury of time from then. And so the question is, does it hold up? This 100% holds up and not only does it hold up, but it holds up better than any other Nirvana album. I agree with that. I did remember there was one other one other fun fact. This this format, which they were uncertain of, not sure if it would work or not. When they came off stage, Kurt looked super down. He comes off and their manager was like, what's wrong? And he's like, we sucked. Everybody hated it. He's like, and then he watched it. He's, well, he, he's like, he's like, did you hear how quiet they were? And she was like, no, they were quiet because they were captivated. They were quiet, not because they were bored, but because they were so enthralled with the performance you just gave. And yeah, it wasn't until a little bit later, once he finally had some time and distance from and and saw what they had done, that he was willing to come around. And he had been talking once that they knew that this format worked, that this was what he actually wanted to do, this formatting. He didn't necessarily want this performance itself, but this formatting, this type of performance for the next Nirvana release. Mm. And so prior to his death, he had been talking with his management about the idea of actually going into a studio and doing doing studio versions re-recording this entire set because he didn't want to have to pay a percentage to MTV. He didn't want MTV to take a cut. Huh. The other song that Dave Grohl wrote about Kurt Cobain has a lyric that I think is it's probably based on that. Uh, it's called Friend of a Friend, and he says, When he plays, no one speaks. It makes sense. Yeah. All right, so we've established that. Yeah, it holds up. It holds up. So what are your three favorite tracks from the album? I don't know if I can answer that. If you had to... That's tough. If you had to pick your three favorites, does it have to be what you think are the best three songs? What three songs speak to Tom? Lake of Fire. Okay. Man Who Sold the World. Okay. And... God, Lake of Fire is just fun. I don't say that it speaks to me. I just have fun when I, when I hear right. it. Something in the way. Okay. Good choices. What is on your top three besides pl- Plateau? Number three would be Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Solid. It's an incredible performance. Vocally, he kills it. They kill it as a band. Number two would be, as you said, Plateau. That's a tough one, though, because that and Lake of Fire, like I said, I feel like are are so close to each other. There's a lot going on, and I love them both for the same reasons. Yeah. So maybe we should put those as a tie. Like, that's one song. 
They're so close. I will agree that Lake of Fire maybe has a bit more going on with like the guitar bits. It's got like maybe a funner solo. I don't know. I, I like the the beat and the rhythm plateau, how it hits. Um, plateau is my number two. My number one, surprisingly, just as a result of re-listening to the album so much, the one that I really came around to is Pity Royalty. Hmm. The performance of it, it's more of a stripped down. It's a bare bones. There's a lot of dynamic to it. There's the quiet bits. Yeah. There's a good rise. There's some bits where it hits kind of hard, back down. Uh, just a lot of a lot of emotional flow. And so going through the dozen times or so that I've listened to it in the last week, I keep coming back to Penny Royalty, and I think that's my number one, at least for the moment. That's the key right there. What's it going to be in a month? What's it going to be next week? What's it going to be when you wake up in the morning? Yep. And I feel like there's someone here that that's going to change depending on when you ask. Absolutely. Do we want to have that sing-off? Oh, we want to do it now. We're talking about Nirvana now. Let's do it. These are both songs that we used to walk down the hall of the high school singing. You're doing like a fire. I'm doing plateau, right? And um, I am the reason Christine hates this song because of the way I sing. Try to sing like Kurt Cobain. She hates this song because of me. I love that she she hates it because these are two that we would frequently serenade strangers with because they're just so much fun to sing. All right. Who's going first? I guess plateau does come first. So I will go. And I am sorry for, for my neighbors, whoever has to hear me through the walls for this. Um, you sound like you're stalling at this point. I am. I am. Good call. Okay. <clears throat> the plateau's clean. There's no dirt to be seen in the work. It was fun. Nothing's on top but a bucket and a mop in an illustrated book about birds. <laughs> See a lot up there, but don't be scared. Who needs actions when you've got words? Now, I do want you to know that, that Meat Puppets were originally labeled as cowpunk, and I think you nailed cowpunk. Darn tootin'. All right, I'm up. <sighs> I knew a lady who came from Duluth, got bit by a dog with a rabid tooth. She went to her grave just a little too soon, flew away howling on the yellow moon. Where do bad folks go when they die? They don't go to heaven where the angels fly. They go to a lake of fire and fry. Say them again till the 4th of July. Nice. Not the words I'd use to describe it, but those are words, in fact, and they are things people understand. All right. Um, I definitely peaked a lot. We'll see how it comes out, and who knows? Maybe the peaking will uh, distract from the greatness of the performances. So let us know. Who sang it best? Whose was better? My Cowpunk or Tom's Butt Rock? <laughs> it may take a while for us to tally your votes. Let us know, and we will let you know in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that was fun. What are we doing in two weeks? Two weeks from now, we're going to be taking a look at one of the all-time greatest named bands, Toad the Wet Sprocket, <laughs> and their 1997 release, Coil. And for the record, that is not the album that has the song, All I Want. Although that is a good song. It's a great song. I think it's the introduction to Toad that everybody had. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. And uh, give that a listen and come back to hear what insight we have into the album and learn what Tom and Mark think about this. Um, 
Also, I feel that, obviously, the life of Kurt Cobain is something that ended tragically much too soon. And so I think maybe appropriate to take a second to just discuss that if you're having difficulties or suicidal thoughts, there are people out there who are willing to help, who are willing to care. And the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-8255. And on that happy note, this has been Once Every Two Weeks. 